It should be one of those uh, pictures, I'm sure you'll recognise it. It simply says, keep calm and carry on. <clears throat> it's become somewhat of a mantra, hasn't it, for British stiff upper lipness, hasn't it? That kind of a, you know, it's a throwback, the, the, the visual image of the kind of the Kitchener, the kind of the Churchillian uh, kind of way of resolve against the oppressor. But the Hun and the Nazis have been defeated. But still today we stand proud, don't we? And we keep calm and we carry on. See, we live in a time where in modern history we've been exposed to massive threat. And the extraordinary thing is we survived. And so what has happened, uh, this is a, a very brief summary, but it's, it's a kind of an expression of we just, uh, who we are as a culture. We just keep calm and we carry on as we were. We survived. We survived two world wars and we survived a global nuclear threat of a Cold War. But even at the, the height of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62 or something like that, I, I don't know if you realise that we got so close to the world ending as we know it. But the fascinating thing is we survived. And how does that change us? Well, this is a little summary. We just keep calm. We carry on. See, people may not say so, but so often people live their lives with no thought to an end. We're just survivors. The assumption is that we uh, just keep calm. And we just carry on as we were before. Of course, we try not to do this one. Panic and freak out. That's not very British, is it? We don't, we don't want to do that. We don't keep calm and next one, use the force. Though that sounds quite like a lot of fun to me. It'd be a bit weird though, wouldn't it? Perhaps we just devolve and our way of coping in this life is devolve into a postmodern consumerist and lose ourselves in hedonistic pleasure, buying some shoes. We may need to just call mum though, keep calm and, oh no, eat some chocolate. I know someone in my family who does that one. May need just to call mum though, that's the next one. Or just go for a run. What's the way that we kind of cope? Some, many in fact. Just turn to the fact that we just want to keep calm and do things as we always have done. We live in a culture of survivors. And so therefore, people just seek pleasure wherever they can find it in a vain attempt to dull the, the kind of impending reality that a day will come, a final day, an end point. The point where we will not be survivors any longer, where we will not be calm, where carrying on will just not be an option. In some sense, this short letter that we've, we're going to dive into, we're only here for three weeks, is actually a love letter from God. It is a love letter of warning, warning of an end point. Uh, that point is referred to in this letter many times. You'll see it just in our reading today. It's referred to as the day of the Lord. Now God doesn't speak through his prophet here, Zephaniah, with some kind of comforting words, a platitude like, you know, we see, keep calm and carry on. No. God lovingly reminds his people of who he is. And what will come of them if they keep calm and carry on? If they just keep living the way that they want to live, ignoring him? This love letter of warning is written by God so that people will be ready. Ready for that final day. The day of the Lord. I have to ask, are you ready? Do you think it will ever happen? Maybe you're sitting here to say, well... I'm just going to carry on and I know it's never going to happen anyway. Just, nothing will happen. But if you have an inkling and think it might, 
Do you think you'll survive that encounter? Do you think keeping calm and carrying on that kind of the adage of our culture would be, would it prepare you for that moment? There's no doubt that the people of God, who, who he addresses here, thought that they could just pay a bit of lip service to God. They could just keep on as they are, ignoring him, doing things as they pleased. They looked for the insurance policy, probably of their ethnicity. They were God's people, perhaps even their church attendants. They had in their mindset, they go, well, you know, we go along to church. We kind of like, we come through doors. Do you know what I miss to come to church today? Look at the effort I've put in. I'm kind of, you know, publicly acknowledging myself as one of God's people. I've made the efforts. It's like the 56% of the people in this country who tick the box Christian at the last census. I wonder if they thought that. I wonder what they thought as they ticked that box. Did they think that would be enough? Well, God will lovingly and categorically and emphatically say, no, no, that is not enough. These are the subjects which Zephaniah addresses and will illuminate for us over these just uh, three short weeks. Now, let me give you a bit of background, if I can. Roughly 100 years before Zephaniah, if you just flip uh, you know, a few pages back, you'll see the other kind of minor prophets and also major prophets. You'll see uh, books like Amos and Hosea and Micah and Isaiah. They had all prophesied on similar vein. The fall of the northern tribes. The, the, the tribes of Israel have been divided into two kind of northern and southern tribes. All of those, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, they all prophesied against the, the fall of the northern tribes. Because of their rebellion against God. Now, there's been about 50 years silence since those prophets had spoken uh, with God's uh, instructions. 50 years silence. And now with clarity, God speaks again through Zephaniah. To demonstrate he will honour his character. He is a just God. And a day is coming when justice will come. What do we know about Zephaniah? Well, all we know is there in verse 1 of chapter 1. Have a look at it. Usually a prophet would give a kind of a short reference point to his life, a bit of biography, if you like. Uh, sometimes they would go back a generation, uh, just kind of give you a, kind of an, an idea where they fitted into history. Here we get Zephaniah going back to four generations. Do you see that? Why? Well, to show he's, he's come from royal blood. Interesting, you go back there, uh, he's in the royal line of Hezekiah. If you know your kind of history, he, he's the last great king, good king of uh, Judah, son of Ahaz. We know little else about Zephaniah. That is it, just in that singular verse at the beginning of the book. But that should not be a problem. We know his credentials in history. But more importantly, we know his message is from God. Following Zephaniah, with the same message, would come the other prophets that you can have a look at later. Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Ezekiel. And they speak about the nature of God's judgment. The judgment in the land, as God's people would be sacked and, and taken by the Babylonians into exile, uh, down into Babylon. But have you ever wondered why these kind of prophecies are here in the Bible? Have you ever wondered that? Because they are extraordinary, aren't they? Well, they function, as I said before, as a loving warning from God. To the people then, as Zephaniah proclaimed it, but also to us today, as we wait for the final day of the Lord. 
There are warnings so people could prepare. Of course, practically, the Babylonians were coming. In a very short time, they would be there. They would sack Jerusalem. They would take away people and kill many and take them down to Babylon. So practically, it's a warning. Pre-prepared, but also spiritually prepare as well. The people of God had rebelled against God for so long. Yes, just judgment was coming physically and painfully, but it was all totally deserved. So God in his kindness warns them. Firstly, so that as these harsh circumstances are about to come on the people, that they don't view them in some kind of, oh, this is a chaotic kind of crazy thing happening. No, this is God in his sovereign judgment working. That they might also, secondly, have the humility to examine their lives. That they might see what they've been doing. They've been turning their backs on God and recognize his justice. I guess may we do likewise. Let's begin there. You'll see on your sheet, so just a couple of points. Uh, Let's begin firstly looking at the nature of God's judgment. This isn't uh, isolated to these verses, but it kind of comes out well in verses 2 through to verse 6 of chapter 1. Let's look at the nature of God's judgment uh, together. Now the first section here, verse 2 to 6, is is dominated. You'll see, just in the language you serve, it's what God will do. Do you see that? God will. I will. I will. The language is incredibly strong, and it's strong because it's meant to humble us. And dare I say it, I know this won't be popular, it's it's even meant to frighten us. Look at it, uh, verse 3. God will sweep away, in verse 3, three times, sweep away. God will destroy at the end of verse 3 and at the beginning of verse 4. There's an escalation in the language as well. God will stretch out his hand. The mighty hand of God. Of course, these these are metaphors to help us understand. But understand something that is infinitely worse. More terrifying than our words can describe. Now, what is alarming about God's judgment here? I'm going to show you three things. very, Very quick things here. Look at the severity of the judgment. See, the judgment here that we see of of God's judgment coming upon his people here, it's even more severe than the judgment that we saw back in Genesis 6 with Noah and the flood. Do you remember that? Who survived the flood of Genesis? Who survived? But is swept away here. Can you see it in the language used? It's the fish in the sea. The fish survived the flood, of course it did, because it's a flood. They, they're just going, I've got more water, swim around in. They're happy. Like, no, not here. It's a small point, but we see that the judgment is severe. There's there's an act of decreation. That's the second alarming thing about God's judgment here. Look again at verse 3. When God created in Genesis 1, the order, interestingly, is exactly the opposite here to the order of creation. You see, when God comes in judgment, what we learn about his judgment, the nature of his judgment here, is he's essentially unpicking creation. It's an act of decreation, you might say. It's done in a just and measured way. The the judgment, you see, is measured and it is ordered. Thirdly then, what is alarming about God's judgment is it's against Judah. It's against Judah, Jerusalem. Look at verse 4 and hearing those first few words, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. 
Now, you can imagine the people, when they heard this for the first time, Zephaniah is proclaiming this, you can imagine them turning around to the people beside and saying, did you, did, you hear, did you hear that? Did you hear it right? Is God coming to judge uh, the people, to sweep uh, you know, his hand against the people of Milton Keynes? Is that what he said? And the person would go, no, he didn't. He said, Judah, it's us. Nothing against Milton Keynes. It's a very nice city. No, you see... It's striking, isn't it? You can imagine the stunned silence. God is coming against his people. Those who by name and ethnicity were were recognised as his. Perhaps they underestimated, you see, that for those who have been given so much, so much is also expected. Do you feel the weight of that? You ought to. The judgment is severe, the judgment is measured and ordered, the judgment is discerning, you see, as well. So how are the people to respond? How, I guess, are we to respond too? Let's turn to the second point, therefore. The major chunk of this section today is from verse 7 of chapter 1 through to verse 3 of chapter 2. Let's see how the people are to respond to God's judgment. God, in his kindness here, gives five imperatives, five instructions to his people about how they ought to respond with the impending doom of his judgment coming upon them. How are they to respond? Firstly, we see, verse 7, look at it, five imperatives. First one, be silent. Be silent. If there's one emotional response, you see, that typifies the whole book of Zephaniah, it is silence in the awe, in awe of God. Have you ever been to London? You're kind of walking down the street, you know, on your commute or wherever you are. And uh, there you are, kind of walking along. It's commonplace for you. You're walking along, you know. And there, there are some people, generally some tourists, just looking at some monument or building. You know, Buckingham Palace is crazy for this. It's just groups of people just standing there going, you know, in awe of the beauty, of the majesty of these buildings. And it's just, you know, you're just walking along as normal. Cameras are out. There's a stunned silence. You sometimes can even hear that kind of stifled, excited, oh, it's Buckingham Palace or whatever it may be. Being in awe of something or someone is, is, is to show reverence, isn't it? It acknowledges a power, a beauty, a greatness, which is beyond you or beyond what you've experienced before. You may have felt that or experienced it as on the top of a mountain. You've seen a beautiful seascape. You know what it feels like, but in a culture of kind of self-importance, it's becoming an increasingly rare experience. For for example, when now, as before in history, do ever a bride and groom stand before each other on their wedding evening in absolute awe, seeing nakedness of a body of someone of the opposite sex for the first time in that way? The silence of verse 7 is like the courtroom, isn't it? When the, when I don't know what the guy does, when he says, you know, get, stand up, and you know, the judge comes in, it's silence, isn't it? <gasps> Something great is about to happen. The right and ha- the fair hand of justice is about to come down. Or, oh. be silent. The people of God are to stand with an appropriate quietness. Before the immensity and the power of God that is about to be displayed 
through his judgment. The cutting off and the destruction of names, if you see that down in verse 4, well, that is those who have kind of gone against the Lord. He cuts them off, their names are silenced essentially. And therefore, in response to that judgment, we are to be silent. Be silent as God punishes. I guess we may be silent simply because this is what we would call retributive justice. Not restorative justice as we understand in our judicial and legal system. You can ask me more about that later. But what are people being punished for here? Well, a number of things. But firstly, uh, because it's compromise. You might call it syncretism. Look at what they did. Of course, they probably went to church. They're probably good people. They kind of, you know, went along, did the things. But they probably went along with that adage, kind of more is always better. So along with coming to church, they also added a bit. We see verse 4, it's Baal worship, don't we? They didn't want us to be, be seen as arrogant or bigoted. Some may have gone to the temple of Baal, like in verse 5, and, and sworn to the gods of Molech. But alongside God, they're kind of mixing, matching. It's a pick and mix kind of view of religion. And is, you, know, you, you see it all today. You don't want to be seen as being too narrow-minded. They don't want to stick out their necks and say, the God that was revealed in the Bible is the only way to know God. No, they were syncretistic. They were compromised. And look at where that kind of thinking begins and look where it ends. They begin in verse 5 by bowing down. That is, they, they, they acknowledge, they certainly don't want to deny the existence of other gods alongside their God, no. They just do a bit of bowing down every now and then. Then by the end of verse 5, they swear to the gods of Molech. It's a slippery slope, isn't it, of acknowledgement to dependency. They swear by. And finally by verse 6, they fully turn their backs on the living God. Literally, it's an interesting word, they've repented. They've turned essentially back to the other gods, turned away from the living God. Oh, they believe in God, yeah. But their adding to him shows a lack of trust and unbelief. And it works itself out in that kind of acceptable, more politically correct kind of religion. But God does not recognise this as true faith at all. And do you know what this looks like? These, probably, these people probably love the things of God. They probably came to church. They were regulars. They, they made cakes for various events. They came to everything. They, they even bought music, Christian music. And they listened to it. They loved it. They got excited about, you know, being amongst a bunch of people, which were really nice. They loved the morality of the church. They, they loved so many parts of being in and around a church. You see, it is possible to attend a church for years and love so much about it, but be utterly cold toward the true and living God. Utterly compromised. What will God do to the compromised? He will destroy and sweep away. And in verse 7, it gets even worse. They're prepared as a sacrifice. Those who survive in God's mercy and sovereign power are the consecrated there. But he will destroy the compromised. And therefore he says, be silent in all. Second instruction is to wail. Sorry, it doesn't get better. 
That's at the end, but not quite yet. Secondly, wail. Verse 10. They're to wail because God in his judgment will wipe them out, as he says in verse 11. Sorry, verse 11, not verse 10. If in the previous verses God punishes his people for believing in too much, in these verses God will judge his people for believing in just too little. Before it was, as I said, syncretism, compromise. Now it is skepticism. They'll be wiped out and all the money and the power that they possess or the prestige that they know in the culture in which they live, as we see in verse 11, is no match for the searching judgment of God. In verse 12, we see what they're being judged for. Complacency. They're just so self-satisfied. They think they've got everything. Life is comfortable. It's easy. I guess we know a few people like that. But maybe ourselves. Look at verse 12 again. It's a threefold kind of, kind of aiming here. It's, it's quite legal language. Verse 12, they're described as wine on its dregs. You know what that is? It's people that are just unmoved. They're stagnant. Dreggy. The end of verse 12, they think God is some important deity that they can ignore. <clears throat> oh, I wonder how many friends you've got like that. I've got loads. They just think the Lord will do nothing, you see there. I'll be on my side in the end. I'll just live as I please. Keep calm, carry on. And therefore they get they, what they deserve. No more and no less. And the Lord says, wail, wail at your complacency and your indifference. We need to be careful that we are not complacent. Do not be the practical atheist. Someone who talks as though there is, there is a God, but who is utterly indifferent to God and lives as if there is no God at all. If that is you, please hear God through Zephaniah, through his word, is speaking to you right now and saying whether you add to God, whether you ignore God, whether you are complacent before God, anything that distorts the truth about God, none of that will be overlooked in his judgment. Therefore, well. Thirdly, listen, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. We're to listen. I know it's not there in our translations, but it's, it is kind of there in the original, and the, it's kind of pressing us to hear, hear it. The people, are called, the people are called to use their ears to hear the awfulness, if you like, of the day of the Lord. Just if you're sat here and you're thinking, well, that's all right, I'm going to miss it, I'm, I'm going to be okay, I'm a Christian here. But just, just be careful of your own heart. There's to be no schadenfreude here. You know that kind of German compound word where we kind of like say, there's joy in watching this sort of the pain of others. None of that. There's no happy thought when someone falls into the judgment of God. But we must listen to what this big day will look like. And if you look down at verse 15 and 16, there is these six-fold kind of um, representations of what this judgment day will look like. Do you see what is happening there? Sixfold. Do you kind of get the idea? Again, there's an undoing of creation, a sixfold unpicking. It's very much uh, just a reversal of the creation narrative in Genesis. But remember, this is no shock. 
This has been, there has been loving warning before. Zephaniah 1.17, if you look down there, is not the first warning of God's judgment and the results of it. This should have been no surprise. Moses, back in Deuteronomy 28, through the curses and blessings, we looked at that last year in our Bible studies, didn't we? Do you remember? If you, if you obey, this will happen. If you do not obey, this will happen. Well, one of the curses was, if you do not obey, you will grope around like the blind, in verse 17 we see here. They'd had the warnings before. Have they listened? No. And when the Babylonians came in and swept them away under the sovereign hand of God, they did grope around like they were blind. There were consequences here for the people. But on the final day of the Lord, that day that will come, the same will happen. God is lovingly warning us and we must listen. And God is not acting without reason. Look at verse 17 again. You'll see they grope around like the blind. Why? Because they've sinned. They sinned against the Lord. And so the opportunity here is to listen. Is to listen to the mighty warrior as God has described here. We'll see later in Zephaniah. It's probably the most famous verse of Zephaniah. We sing it in songs and so on. You'll see it in chapter 3 later on. The opportunity that we have, the choice that we have with the mighty warriors, either he's going to sing over you in his love and rejoice over you as one who has been saved by his mercy and kindness, or he will slay you with his right and fair judgments. So listen. Literally the word is hark in the original. Fourthly, gather. Going to chapter 2 now, chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shame, shameful nation. Now that phrase there is the extraordinary verse, that shameful nation. God uses words there to describe his people as Gentiles. The nation word is a very kind of derogatory word. They would have been insulted by that alone, never mind being called a shameful nation. It's like a double whammy. The nation that were to the nation that were set apart to give glory to God, to display God and His power to the nations around. Well, that same nation who God had once gathered are now to gather themselves, and they would have known what that word meant to gather. They would have known that it's it's used very much in kind of arable farming, where you gather the sheaves of corn um, of straw. To be burnt. They knew what it meant. They were literally to prepare themselves for God's judgment. And we see in verse 2, it is utterly fierce. It will come upon them and it will consume them. And it did when the Babylonians swept in. And it will in the final day of the Lord. Now to this point, we've got four minutes left, five minutes left. To this point, you... Rightly, I'm rightly sobered. It's horrible, it's terrifying. It should shake us. There should be sadness. There's nothing here that is not just, that is not fair, that is not just, there's nothing like, oh, he's just overdone it a little bit there. No, none of that. But as we turn to the end now, let's be thankful for this last verse. Let's look at it together. 
verse 3 of chapter 2. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Fifth instruction, seek. God in his mercy and his love to you says, seek. Three times he says it, doesn't he? Seek, seek, seek. Seek the Lord so you might be protected from when his judgment comes. And it sounds like crazy talk, doesn't it? We've just heard all about God and what he will do, what he has the capacity to do, what in his justice will be done. And you're kind of going, that is not the one I want to go and seek. That sounds like madness, doesn't it? But where else will you go? You're going to turn to your family at that point. You're going to turn to your ethnicity. I'm British. I'm wherever from. Are you going to turn to your money? Go, oh, where? Where will you go? Seek the Lord. Ask yourself in the light of God's judgment to come, where else can you turn? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, it says, all you who are humble. See, seeking in itself requires humility, doesn't it? Because you recognise a need. You've got to seek something out. You go, I'm without that, and therefore I've got to go and get it. You recognise a need in yourself. You are without an answer. We have a need before God's judgment. Have the humility to seek the Lord so that you might be protected. And thirdly, the third seek is to seek righteousness. Clearly a righteousness that is not our own. If you're here today and thinking this is hardly what I expected Sunday morning, well, no doubt that you are not alone, but do not miss this just wonderful glimpse into the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the whole Bible. God through Zephaniah says, seek righteousness. Seek a righteousness of God so that you will stand at judgment. You and I know that our lives are not right with God. Ourselves, we're not even right with ourselves, are we? We don't, we don't meet our own standards. We don't meet our family standards. We don't meet anyone's standards. We fail, we mess up. The Bible simply calls that sin. And it makes us not right with God. None of us are completely righteous. But there was one who was. We are to seek the righteousness here. It is pointing us to the one who is utterly righteous. And his name is Jesus. He offers his righteousness to us through his life, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his life-giving resurrection. And all you need to do is put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. Trust him with your life now and with your death. Seek righteousness. And what did Jesus promise? Seek and you will find. Let me conclude. When the day of the Lord comes for us, that that final day when history ends and eternity begins, we have seen with the picture here of the day of the Lord that came for the people of God when the Babylonians swept in, we have seen here today that it will be utterly terrible, but it will be utterly just as well. Perhaps some of you have uh, 
heard the great masterpiece of Verdi's Requiem Mass. Do you know ever sung that or performed that or heard it? Mozart did a great one of it too. If you have sung it and you know it, it is a masterpiece, but even within it there's a movement called the Dies Irae, which is actually a translation of Zephaniah 1, verse 15 and 16. Just the first little stanza of it says, Day of wrath and doom impending, David's word with sibyls bending, heaven and earth in ashes ending, woe, woe, woe. It's very easy to listen to such a beautiful piece of music and it is haunting and brilliant at the same time without fully comprehending the message of it. I just want to say today, please, please hear the message. Be prepared for the day of the Lord to come. And the only way God in his love has made it clear The only way to be prepared is to seek the Lord, to have the humility to know that in and of yourselves, you've got nothing. You've got nothing to offer God. You're you're sitting here, nothing. Your wealth, nothing. Your ethnicity, nothing. You've got nothing to offer God. Come in humility before him, the creator and judge. And seek the righteousness that's available through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, and only then, you will be sheltered from the day where God's wrath will be poured out, the day of the Lord. Let's pray as we close.